May the 19th, 1999, Sophie Coppola's first feature, The Virgin Suicides, premiered at the director's fortnight at the Cannes Film Festival. Directing from a script she adapted from Jeffrey Eugenides' debut novel of the same name, Coppola detailed the tragic year in the home of a repressively strict Catholic family, the Lisbons, whose five teenage daughters all die by suicide. Read like that, the story sounds so punishing as to be unwatchable, and yet somehow in Coppola's hands it is more than watchable. Undeniably tragic, Coppola yet manages to leaven the immense grief through nuanced observation and a very dreamy and equally heavy atmosphere. What makes Coppola's achievement all the more remarkable is that there simply has never been any other film like it, before or since. Proof? Just how many movies can you name where that level of suffering is avalanched on teenage girls in one family? What are you doing here, honey? You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Obviously, Doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. However, while Coppola was breaking new ground, the mood of the piece, its brittle beauty, and paradoxically, the girl's languid vivacity in the face of death, is reminiscent of Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Four years later, on August the 29th, 2003, at the Telluride Film Festival, Coppola premiered her second feature, Lost in Translation. Working this time from her own original material, Lost in Translation marked an exponential leap, and, if nothing else, proves that scriptwriting is more than just dialogue. Coppola has said that she came up with the idea for the film while she was in Japan promoting the Virgin's suicides. Of course, she had spent time in that country before then, both as an adult and as a young girl, when her father, Francis Ford Coppola, had gone there in 1979 to appear alongside Akira Kurosawa in a number of television commercials advertising Centauri whiskey. Far more than just creating dialogue, a screenplay is about creating a map for how the disciplines of picture, sound, editing, costume and location can aggregate to deliver a unique cinematic experience. Compare the dialogue Coppola wrote with just how much she communicates by non-verbal means and you will see a director in full command of her art. On the page, Lost in Translation reads as a very slight plot, with minimal conflict and lightly sketched characters. Bob, played by Bill Murray, and Charlotte, played by Scarlett Johansson, find themselves at loose ends in Tokyo. And that is it. But watching and listening to the finished film delivers such rich themes and meaning that it abundantly rewards repeated viewings. From the very first image, everything we see and hear, and, just as importantly, what the characters think and feel, indicates that there is something absent, something missing, something more than this, you know there's nothing more than this, tell me one thing more than this. By nature, cinema is a literal medium. 
The fact that the camera represents as opposed to describes what is in front of it and the boom operator captures the sound rather than interprets it. Everything is in danger of being so apparent, so obvious, so literal, the room for interpretation is minimised. With so many things explicit, there is so little that is implicit. The challenge then is for every filmmaker to transform what is literal into something figurative. An obvious example can be found from the early 1960s, with three films by Michelangelo Antonioni, La Ventura, La Notte and La Clisse, each of which explored alienation and spiritual emptiness. And from the opening image in her film, Coppola pursues and secures something similar. We see a young woman lying on her side in bed. Her back to the camera, she is wearing a blue sweater and pink sheer underwear. An arresting image to say the least, it was inspired by American photorealist painter John Cassari, who spent almost his entire career focused exclusively on either the female midriff or lower back and derriere. Coppola initially hoped to be a painter, and here she is in conversation with Mark Maron from his WTF podcast, talking about how that initial ambition led her to becoming a director. It seems so obvious, but at the time I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I, I went to CalArts and I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a painter. Really? Did you and, paint? Yeah, but very badly. Uh, uh, yeah, and then um, and then I went to Art Center, and my painting teacher told me I, I wasn't a painter, oh. and I was really upset, but I'm, I'm glad that they did. And, yeah. I, and I met um, Paul Jasmine, the photography teacher there, and got into photography, and um, I collect photographs. You and, do? Yeah, and, I, and so I, I love Eggleston and yeah. Lee Freelander and yeah. um, Helmut Newton. I love photography, and that's um, how I got into that love of photography explains the profession of Charlotte's husband John, played by Giovanni Ribisi, and also puts Bob through the ordeal of the Suntory photo shoot. I need mysterious face. Attention is mysterious. Mysterious. I, I think I know what you want. You want this, right? I need more mysterious and uh, more mysterious. Yeah, I, I'll just try to think where the hell's the whiskey. Yeah. Both John's character and Bob's experience illustrates the film's distrust with surface and artifice, and both spring from the film's opening image. With her sheer pink underwear, we can both see and not see Charlotte's bare skin. Likewise, after the photo shoot, Bob is drinking in the bar, and as he retires to his bedroom, we see that he still has on the back of his tuxedo the staples positioned to keep the jacket in place. Just as the surface of things will often conceal an ulterior meaning, so too will sound reveal and shroud what is really being said. And it is that differential that will come to represent Charlotte and Bob's emotional states. Two Americans adrift in Tokyo, they are both experiencing varying degrees of loneliness, confusion and alienation. And it is through connecting with one another that they connect with their own lives. The problem they face is that no matter where they look or what they say, they are confronted at every turn by a world overrun by the surface of things. They are surrounded by such levels of artifice, they literally cry out for something that is not fake, something that is genuine and sincere, something authentic. You are a movie star. Yes, yes movie, I should be doing movies. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the Lat Pak, Lat Pak, you know Lat Pak? Rat. Rat pack? Rat pack, oh, yes, rat. please. Pay more attention, please. What? You're so gentle, man, yes? 
A ring a ding ding. Yeah. Sinatra? You know Sinatra? Bob is instructed to imitate Frank Sinatra, aka Old Blue Eyes. He agrees, but then he does an impression of Dean Martin, whose real name was Dino Crocetti. Next, Bob is directed to pretend to be Roger Moore, but not really Roger Moore, Roger Moore as James Bond, who also went under the name of 007. The only problem is, that secret agent never drank Suntory whiskey, but dry martinis. So who is Bob underneath all that? A clue comes when he goes out for evening drinks with Charlotte. He arrives at the door to her room wearing an orange camouflage t-shirt, <laughs> to which Charlotte remarks, You really are having a midlife crisis, huh? Really? Mm. I was afraid of that. Embarrassed, Bob steps into her bathroom to change the shirt, but emerges only wearing it inside out. Now, with his heart on his sleeve, they go to the karaoke bar where he sings, As I walk through this wicked world, Searching for light in the darkness of insanity. I ask myself, is all I hope lost? Is there only pain and hatred and misery? And each time I feel like it's inside, there's one thing I want to know. What's so funny? The choice of song is influenced by more than just the meaning of the lyrics. Initially written and recorded by Nick Lowe in 1974 with his band Brinsley Schwartz, Peace, Love and Understanding became a hit when Elvis Costello, whose real name is Declan McManus, released a cover version of it in 1978. But by the time Bob sings it, it is a clé de coeur. And Charlotte has her own version of that, but it is not one which he needs to sing along to. It is a CD which is supplied to every guest in the hotel. A soul search, finding your true calling. Charlotte gives it a listen, but just like her visit to the temple where she felt alienated, she is not yet ready to actually identify what her soul's true calling is. Instead, she goes out to meet her Japanese friend Charlie Brown, who chooses as his karaoke song, God Save the Queen. Only what he sings isn't the official British national anthem, but rather an alternative version by the Sex Pistols. Of course, Charlie Brown isn't his real name, but rather Fumihiro Hayashi. What is interesting though, is that of all names Hayashi has chosen, or indeed has been given, it is that of a fictitious cartoon character. Likewise, if you read Coppola's script, not all the songs that she stipulated in the screenplay made it to the karaoke party. She had initially listed a preference for Bob to sing Angie by the Rolling Stones. Also, the script initially had Charlotte singing this classic by Patsy Cline.
could have worked, but instead, and now replete with a pink wig, Charlotte selects this song. Written by Chrissy Hind and James Honeyman Scott, Brass and Pocket may have been performed by the pretenders, but Charlotte is not pretending. She feels ignored by her husband John, who, for all his talent, is no more successful at getting beneath the surface of things than the Japanese photographer. But the fitting today, they, they had all these rock and roll clothes, but the, but, but, but the band wasn't tough at all, and the label guys just kept saying more rock and roll, but it's, it's just so much better if they're just skinny and nerdy like they came in, you know? I mean, they're making them wear all these Keith Richards clothes and it's just sort of ridiculous. They should just let them be who they are, don't you think? The one person who does manage to get a little beneath the surface is the doctor in the hospital who examines the x-ray of Charlotte's foot when she fears she has broken her toe. But really, that is of little use because Charlotte doesn't understand what he is saying which suggests that it doesn't matter how the characters express themselves, whether it be through songs, clothes, interpreters, faxes and trans-Pacific phone calls, everything is misunderstood. Even when characters do speak to each other in the same language, their understanding of each other is by and large superficial. Here is Scarlett Johansson on The Charlie Rose Show drawing a comparison between what actors are asked to do, pretend to be other people, and find the balance between that and the truth of their art. Being an actor, it's a very strange sort of profession. You're manipulating your emotions all the time. And I think that it's something that the more you know about yourself, and it seems to be the more you grow, it's uh, it's a very, I think it's something that happens to you as, as you get older. I think you go through periods when you doubt very much what you're doing, and other periods, I suppose, when you, you know, when everything just seems to be, when you seem to know yourself really well. While the tone of the Virgin Suicides resembles Picnic at Hanging Rock, watching Lost in Translation, it is impossible not to be reminded of two other masterpieces swirling in the maelstrom of unconsummated attraction. David Lean's Brief Encounter and Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. In the former, Celia Johnson plays a suburban housewife, Laura Jessen, who meets a married doctor, Alec Harvey, played by Trevor Howard, at a train station. While in the latter, Su Li Zhen, played by Maggie Chung, and Chao Mo Wan, played by Tony Lung, play neighbours whose spouses have betrayed them. In both stories, the tension lies in the painful efforts to resist all magnetic temptation. Both Lean and Karwai sustain the tension superbly, and Coppola achieves the same feat here which means that the real problem she faced was how to get Bob and Charlotte to say goodbye. In the end, they do so no less than seven times, and Coppola's direction is so secure that not one of those farewells feels repetitive. Instead, each comes with a different reason and a different tone. And then finally, when the last goodbye takes place in the street, hey, you. you wonder what else there could be left to say, at which point Coppola plays her most ingenious card. In a film where so much music has dominated the soundtrack, she opts to drop the volume altogether, so we can't hear what is being said. Which is just as well, because finally, a connection has been made between two lonely people 
that is so direct, so authentic and sincere, it cannot be captured on film. This moment is so intimate, so private, so true, it is exclusively for the Tokyo Drifters. <laughs>